book does such a great job of demonstrating how elusive the beginning of that journey is down the rabbit hole of mental illness and addiction. Mindy Greiling was a member of the Minnesota House of Representatives for 20 years. She has served on state and national boards of the National Alliance on Mental Illness and is on the University of Minnesota Psychiatry Community Advisory Council. George Rilmuto is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Both George and Mindy are parents of children with brain disease. Mindy's son Jim is 42 and was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder in his early 20s. George's daughter, a mother and an award-winning creative, passed away in 2019 as a result of chemical and mental illness. She would be 38 today. Both are here to share their experiences, their expertise, and their hopes for the future of caring for loved ones facing mental and substance use disorders. This conversation was recorded in September 2020. Hello, this is Mindy Greiling, and I'm really pleased to have with me Dr. George Rimolto, who's going to discuss with me the intersection of mental illness and substance abuse. There's a huge intersection, but yet the mental health system and the chemical dependency systems don't intersect nearly as much. And um, of course, um, Dr. Realmuto is a professional. He's a child psychiatrist at the University of Minnesota and knows a lot. He also knows a lot by being a family member like me. And um, our son, Jim, when he was probably in about ninth grade, was starting to dabble in uh, marijuana. And at that time, even us parents didn't really realize what that could mean in terms of him when he was 21, being diagnosed with schizo schizophrenia and later schizoaffective disorder. And, um, you know, I thought, well, I, maybe not in ninth grade, but when I was older, um, used alcohol, you know, in my college years. And I thought marijuana was similar to that. So it was a rude awakening um, when way after the fact, I found out differently. And um, Jim has been, been ill now for 20 years. And even he himself will say that if he had known the effect that marijuana and then it led to other drugs with him, much more serious drugs as well, then he would have been um, much less apt to use it or at least as much. He feels that he got sick earlier than he would have, worse than he would have, and maybe he could have even gotten away with a very mild case if he hadn't used all those drugs. So um, we've had a very hard time, and, and that's why I wrote my book that Dr. Ramuto was kind enough to read early. Can I call you George? Mindy, yes, you can. Your family experience has been similar to ours, except yours ended much more sadly. Can you talk, tell us a little bit about your daughter? Uh, I certainly will. Uh, Mindy, thank you for this invitation. Thank you for writing your book. Thank you for exposing in your book the vulnerable emotions that family members experience 
when they have a family member, a child, a uncle, sister, daughter, brother, um, who had so much promise, and then it begins to evaporate. And, and your book does such a great job of demonstrating how elusive the beginning of that journey is down the rabbit hole of mental illness and addiction. There, there, when perhaps at night, at three o'clock in the morning, we, we who have had uh, family members afflicted uh, be, try to think about, if only, if only I had recognized that sign, or if only I had done something at that point, things would have diff- been different. And it's something that we then live with the rest of our lives. Not, it's not regret, but it's, it's, the, it's the need to try to solve a problem that our current culture, society, uh, laws really um, have very few answers for. Uh, we could talk about uh, the medical uh, treatment uh, and and how that is helpful, but uh, it needs to be all of those things, and it's not. So let me talk about my daughter, uh, similar to your son. Uh, she started her addiction with marijuana, and um, she this happened so long ago that the uh, Star Tribune was doing a a feature on the early use of marijuana by adolescents. And at the time, it was thought to be strange and unusual. And so she was one of the students interviewed uh, for that story. Uh, She had uh, some difficulty with driving uh, because of the use of alcohol and marijuana. Uh, but the addiction story starts with kind of uh, dabbling and then experimentation and then recreational use and then um, addiction that that causes some level of dysfunction. You know, the functional addict is, is a way that People call that, and then, and then for some, it becomes malignant. And the malignant story is they live for their addiction because the withdrawal phenomenon and the drive in their in their nucleus accumbens, their pleasure center, is such that nothing else really can compete with with the drug. With marijuana, however, there is another little bit that we know to this story. And uh, the developing brain is influenced by marijuana. And if you look at MRIs or other ways of looking at neural circuits, those that use more marijuana have brains that look much more like schizophrenia than not. And so it is a neurotropic influence on brain development that moves one towards the symptoms of schizophrenia. 
it's not, you know, that's not well known, but there is um, scientific evidence that demonstrates that. Both George and I were at a NAMI Minnesota annual conference last fall. And for the first time, this link that George is talking about is well enough known that there were several workshops at that conference devoted to um, the connection between early use of marijuana and developing schizophrenia. And they were packed sessions. I'm I wonder if the planners even realized what a nerve they were hitting, but there were, um, you know, it was hard to get a seat in those sessions. And um, I, at the time, told George afterwards, I wished he had been one of the presenters because um, he stood up and spoke to the room so eloquently about this topic. Well, um, in terms of presentations, you know, I'm going to go back to your book, Fix What You Can. Um, for the most part, uh, when people talk about this, it is a moment in time that's a crisis. Your book is filled with points that were crises. My relationship with my daughter and her uh, mental health and addiction issues uh, often came together around a crisis. She was homeless. She didn't have money for treatment. Uh, the relationships that she had where she was living broke down. Uh, she was being abused. There are all these dysfunctions that follow along with the use of, of uh, drugs, alcohol, and, and are contributed to by mental illness. When I was able to read the book and see the, the whole story laid out, not just a crisis, but the crisis followed by the crisis, followed by the other crisis, followed by things being dropped by the system, things that the system never really considered, the lack of participation by the family and other natural supports that would have could have made a difference. That is the beauty of this book. The book not just talks about symptoms. You know, I think the medical community is should should take some responsibility. When as a child and adolescent psychiatrist and someone brought a youngster to me was having difficulty. I could go to, through the symptom list and make a diagnosis. And so what is my job? To make a diagnosis and prescribe the medications that are consistent with that diagnosis. Well, there's a lot more to this story than diagnosis and treating symptoms. There's relationships. There's dysfunction. There's the necessary support to make sure somebody has a place to live, the basic requirements of human beings to exist and the, and the decency that we need to accord them. That is a big part of this story, this story, and that's the story that you tell. And I'm glad you do it. Well, I'm really glad that you pegged into the parent piece because you know, that, as we know, it's an evidence-based practice. People that have mental illness do better when their families are involved. But as uh, one of, I have many goals in the book, and but one of them certainly was to 
highlight and showcase the plight of the parents and how when um, someone is in crisis, as your daughter was and our son thankfully isn't at the present time, but certainly has been many times, and only a few of them are in the book, um, then um, the mental health system tends to throw up their hands and toss the person back to the family. But when they're doing better or when they're you know, in crisis and then coming out of it, um, then the family is often held at bay. You know, have you signed a release of information? Have you, are you sure you're not the problem? You know, I think a lot of us parents, you know, feel defensive because we look, get looked at askance. You know, maybe we did something. We already think we must have done something. And then the mental health system uh, reinforces that. You know, you must, that maybe these aren't always good parents. Maybe we're part of the problem. And I think um, that's why so many families, um, you know, there's plenty of good ones and plenty of people like us that stick through thick and thin, but there's also families, really good families too, who bow out and kind of fade away because the person maybe not in their right mind is not being kind to their family. The mental health system doesn't want them, you know, to be involved. It's easier. I was a elementary teacher, so I know it's easier, you know, just to deal with the student. But I also know that it was a heck of a lot better for the student and for me as a teacher in the long run, if there was family involvement, reinforcing at home, you know, what I was trying to teach in the classroom. So um, that is a big part of the book. And um, I am sure, George, you as a professional and now and also as a family member can see that really well. You know, with children and adolescents, it's expected that the family has the best interest of the child in at, at heart. And when you have a brain disease that prevents a person from making high level in their best interest decisions, it would seem that the family would be a good resource for the community to discuss decisions and plans and what's next and how to support the people like, like my daughter and your son. And yet it seems that community care includes anybody but the family. It should be mandatory that at the time of a hospitalization, you know, those crossroads that occurs that are so significant that people who are interested and uh, should be um, supportive could come to a meeting, should be asked to come to a meeting. Now, if the person, if the adult uh, who, who has mental illness or addiction doesn't want them there, there could be a discussion about that and maybe they would have to leave. But to be invited in the first place, I think creates an environment for the affected person that we're asking these people to come because they love you, they want to support you, and they have been supportive of you in the past. The problem is the word enabling. And that word is like a hammer that hits the, the parents over the head. You're enabling them. 
they should be able to make these decisions. And if they make mistakes, they will learn from their mistakes. Excuse me, they have a brain disorder. Yes, they do yes. not learn the way other people learn. If you're talking about a healthy person, you should not enable them. If you're talking about someone with brain disease, the word enabling needs to be redefined so that it's it says, this is supportive. Here are the things that you can do that are supportive. Paying for treatment making plans for shelter, uh, helping somebody through the maze of, of uh, forms and bureaucratic um, requirements to get a job. These things are difficult for people with brain disease. They, this is music to my ears to hear you say this because... Um... You know, this is exactly what I think. Our family tried um, Al-Anon. We were recommended actually by more than one person in the mental health system, you know, try Al-Anon, even though Jim was not an alcoholic, it's other drugs that he's, that he abuses. Um, And we went and yes, it was focused on alcohol, but not totally. Um, But the topic of mental illness did not come up. It was all about exactly as you're saying, George, um, not enabling, you know, learning when you can take, sit back, take care of yourself. Don't let yourself get sucked in. And that part was, um, you know, helpful in the sense that yes, we weren't taking very good care of ourselves, but um, I couldn't, I had to block out everything they were saying if they thought I was going to leave someone with, you know, schizophrenia, brain dysfunction, and, um, you know, just let him fend for himself on the street. I didn't think he would make it, and um, it didn't seem right. So I, we'd have, my husband and I, I think we lasted uh, four meetings, maybe, and we just decided that was actually not for us. Yeah, well, that model, you know, there are some good things about that model. There's a number of other people in the group who are going through the same thing. And that, and you hear their story, and you, and you say, "My goodness, that's my story too." I hear, I hear you struggle with uh, how to interact, what kind of a relationship you can maintain with an adult child who gets so angry that you haven't given them money so that so that they can buy their drug. You know, that's a, a significant part of your book: the amount of money that that is required to maintain a cocaine habit. It's just unbelievable. And, uh, and if you don't pay that bill, uh, what, what, is the, what is the dealer going to do to you? It's incredibly scary. Uh, that is a well-done part of the book. But, you know, the Al-Anon uh, model is from the 30s. And at that time, we didn't understand what craving was, what what part of the brain was affected by these drugs. And, and the tools that we had were, if you have a relationship with a sponsor, and every time you have this need to take a drug, call your sponsor. And, and because that relationship is, is an important one to you, maybe it will deter you from using the drug. That was it. That was, the model was developed at that time, with that as the only tool. 
we got a long, we've come a long way from that, but the Al-Anon, uh, Naranon model continues to, to use uh, some antiquated uh, ideas. The, for adolescents, uh, the imposition of turn, turn your life over to God, just for many, does not make any sense at all. They are invul- invincible. They're not going to turn anything over to anybody. No, and at different times when um, when we were looking, at, you know, Jim was sent to um, to various treatment programs, and there was one model that he really really liked that didn't involve um, the twelve steps. But at the one time when he was uh, being encouraged to take the twelve steps, he himself thought he might be the God, be God, or be the devil, or maybe both. And so something he just that really was not a model that that he could could relate to at all. Well, you know, I would like to um, pick your brain, George, about the top, some of the things about what you started a little bit with what marijuana can do with the brain. Um, and being a child psychiatrist, um, could you just kind of give us a roadmap of exactly what happens to the brain when young people are developing? or maybe aren't even going to develop it, but then they start using drugs. I don't think, I know I didn't know about that, as I said, when our children were teenagers. There is a physical pain and emotional pain and, and the pain of, uh, of mental illness being beset with uh, thoughts, ideas, voices, uh, visual hallucinations. These are not fun things. This is this is painful, and it all goes through the same circuit in the brain, uh, whether it's physical pain or, or mental anguish or emotional pain, and uh, you know the thalamus is involved and and the limbic system is involved and the uh, amygdala is involved, uh, such that you're in a car accident or you're raped, or you're shot at, and it's traumatizing. Uh, Every time you hear the sound that's similar to a gunshot, uh, your your stress hormones and the stress response system kicks in. And, uh, you know, rape is uh, when when you're in the presence of, of someone who is acting uh, bossy, aggressive, controlling—the uh, same stress response system kicks in, um, and so that is another part of the pathway to the use of of drugs and and alcohol and other things that affect the amygdala, because the amygdala is like the the volume on the radio. And once it gets turned up by these traumatic experiences or by mental illness or by other circumstances like toxins, uh, it's very difficult to turn it back down. You have reset your system so that you're in vigilance, you're you're attuned to the environment, trying to protect yourself from this stress response system going into overdrive. So there's a common pathway here uh, around which the pain of that system 
the fear of that system overtaking you and making you feel overwhelmed, there's a couple of solutions, you know, CBT and uh, some new treatments that affect, that can be delivered through uh, electronic stimulation. Could you tell us, for tell everybody what CBT stands for? Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Yes, yes. Where, where you work very hard, uh, and, and there's a lot to it, to uh, uh, use your brain to think about other ways and other, other solutions other than the one that's right before you. Like, there's a voice telling me I'm God, and so if I'm God, then I ought to be able to do this, this, and this. Okay. Uh, there's another part of your brain that could add a different perspective to that. I know it's going to be very hard to think about a, a different perspective, but with practice, you can do it. And that's why it's a skill. Uh, and, and you come away from, from CBT with a skill that offers you alternatives to uh, the pathway that, that's usually taken in your brain. And you know, our son has actually had that and he has really benefited from it. You know, he does, he thinks it's a lot of work, you know, that he can't just trust his perceptions or trust that he heard what my husband or I or any of his friends might have said. He has to use that. He has to do that work to think, is that plausible? Would my mother really say she hated me and, you know, wanted me to die? You know, he knows I wouldn't say that, but he still has to, he thought he heard me say that. So he has to stop and think, no, she wouldn't say that. So then he can discard that, you know, so he considers it a lot of work, but it actually has helped him because he does do that work when he's doing well. And then he can move on and separate out what's real and what is not. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad. That's a, that's a, a nice dis- kind of practical description of how it works. And uh, so there are there are talk therapies like that. You know, there's the there's the antipsychotic medications that have uh, the new ones that have uh, some level of effectiveness. Um, there is uh, one or two that have come out in the past year that purport to not only affect the positive symptoms like hallucinations, but the negative symptoms. And, and, you know, your book talks about Jim's lack of interest, lack of motivation, just sitting there and not being able to get going. So there's a, one or two new medications that supposedly have improved that symptom. But but that gets us back to um, the supports that are necessary because motivating people uh, usually happens or can happen in a relationship. Um, when someone knows someone else really well, they can say things like, you know, you can sit there all day or we can go out and watch the Twins beat the Red Sox or the Yankees, which would be better. Um, <laughs> and, and that gets them out of the house. Otherwise, that becomes their whole life. They just sit there and progress in, in thinking about 
these negative ideas and these unrealistic ideas. That's one of the things that bothers me about the mental health system, you know, because families are much more apt to do that. And as we've already said, yet families aren't always welcome within the mental health system. But, um, you know, there are case managers, very well-meaning social workers, nurses, doctors, um, uh, people that work through caddy waivers, you know, to, to help with things. But often they are coming to check on medication, see if the apartment is clean, see if there's too many symptoms, um, see if he's making his appointments, getting his paperwork in, helping him with his voluminous amounts of paperwork. But the idea of anybody, you know, ensuring that he has friends or gets out of his apartment and, you know, goes to coffee shops, takes walks, you know, those are things that by and large are left to families, which is part of the tragedy then of, um, of not involving them. I, our son actually, with very little poking, will get up and be so happy if he actually got out in the sunshine and took a walk at, in a park trail or something, but he just wouldn't do it himself. And um, nobody else in the mental health system to speak of is they suggest it, you know, but they don't actually say, come on, I'll go with you. Let's go right now um, because they don't have time. Yes, Mindy. And so that certainly should be part of a, a community care plan where uh, the kind of uh, social recreational um, supports are made available. And um, I, social workers are busy, and yes, they are. They do a, uh, their job, which is um, manage the the paperwork and uh, and things like that. Um, you know, find another apartment if necessary. Uh, connect the funding to the to the client. But uh, the the real business of living a life is not that. The real business of living a life is the enjoyment of the contacts you have with people who are who you feel good about being with. That's a life. And where is that in the plan? Exactly. And what role do you think um, uh, illicit drugs play in people's lives who have mental illnesses, who aren't having those kinds of experiences, so they aren't feeling happy in those ways. Is there a correlation between drug use and uh, having a life that's not satisfying? Uh, absolutely. And, and here's how I think it works. People with mental illness uh, become marginalized. And so their access to healthy people is, is decreases. They get narrower and narrower number of people who are willing to support to put up with their uh, unusual ideas, their rants, and their difficult behaviors. Uh, and so one of the things that connects them is let's use drugs together. It's, it's a party. We're at a party. And so we're using drugs together. And there are people there who now accept me because I'm using drugs with them. Uh, so that that substitutes for real relationships. And, and your book does a good job of describing situations like that for Jim. And that happened to my daughter. 
She uh, left Minnesota, went to another state and uh, affiliated with people who were using drugs. And that became her life. And those relationships, they're not real relationships. Those are relationships that connect people only around the use of drugs. Uh, when the drugs are not there, they're not friends anymore. That's exactly what happened with my son. He had a girlfriend who I write about in the book. And once um, they got into court as a result of all their drug use and some other illegal activities um, and um, were told not to use drugs anymore, she mostly kept on doing so and Jim didn't. And once he stopped, their relationship uh, fell apart and um, he was able to see that it wasn't a good relationship and broke up with her and thankfully still is not with her. But that was totally all their relationship was, was using drugs um, as fast and furiously as they could get them and get the money any way they could, you know, to continue using drugs. So I'm sorry to hear that your daughter had those same experiences. Well, but Mindy, your your book is not talking about one person. It's like every person. It's like every Jim. It's like every Kathleen. It's the same story. It's not just Jim's story. When people read this book, they'll know this is what happened to my child. This is what happened to my family member. It's the same story. It's not that unique, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I'm really sorry to say that too. But I've read um, other books and I've found a lot of commonalities. And that was my hope um, with this book. You know, I did hear the current head of psychiatry at the University of Minnesota say, if you've heard one story about a person with mental illness, you've heard one story. And I think that's true in, in a, you know, very tight definition. Um, but I think it's more, um, as you said, um, there's so many commonalities that we can totally take one person's story and relate it to ours in so many ways. And that was part of my purpose too, in writing the book. And, and the way the mental health system of care deals with individuals is everybody's story too. Now, the, the uniqueness of every individual needs to be respected, highlighted. And that's why you need family members who know the uniqueness of, of their family member. That they are not generic people, but their story is a generic story. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, so that drugs provide, you know, artificial friendships, artificial lives. Um, is there are there any treatments that you would care to talk about or highlight that work best for people that have both? mental illness and chemical dependency. And of course, most, they generally say half the people with mental illness have a chemical dependency and vice versa. And if you count, you know, mental illnesses that aren't terribly serious, like, you know, this time, the kinds that our children have and many other people have, it's probably much higher than that in the correlation. Is there any treatment that really works and how long has it been in coming? Well, let's start at the very beginning. There's prevention. So 
uh, I had the opportunity to uh, get in with with other members of the faculty at the university uh, a number of grants to prevent um, adverse outcomes. So um, one of the trajectories that leads to drug use and um, and mental illness is um, early onset behavioral difficulties. So the kid, uh, the the kid in first, second, and third grade, who ends up in um, EBD class, um, special education because of behavior, not because of learning problems. Um, those kids are at high risk for adverse outcomes, uh, like. Uh, getting involved in the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system, using drugs and uh, leaving school prematurely. And there's a lot of environmental issues and genetic issues, but there are things that, that prevention programs can do to allow those kids to have skills so that they can connect with pro-social peers and not get marginalized so that the only peers they have are those who have negative behaviors. And so they start modeling each other's negative behavior. And where is that going to go? Uh, so we had a project called Early Risers. And there are a number of these uh, that have been developed and, and sponsored by the federal government. And, um, and some of those elements uh, are in our school at this point, social emotional uh, supports and education. Remember, Mindy, remember when we went to schools should be only about reading, writing, and arithmetic? I you know, remember those days. Yeah. Basic about <laughs> school. And yep. all of the other things were supposed to be managed or, or somewhere else. Well, if a kid is in school for eight hours, you can't just absent those social emotional skills that are necessary no to live your life. That's for sure. So prevention, uh, it's good, good to start there. The, let's see, other things that uh, uh, are useful are supports for parents because, because it's very confusing to have a child who has behaviors that are not typical and how do you manage them? How do you think about them? What's developmental? What's what's atypical? Um, and and I think marriage and family therapists are very effective, can be very effective in helping parents understand where a kid is at. You know, the, I I remember so vividly a two-year-old boy after a rain running out and jumping in a puddle. And, and one parent was saying, was getting all over the kid about making a mess and getting wet. And the other parent was very supportive. Like, this is what a two-year-old does. They want to see what a puddle does. And, and so I could imagine later in the day, those two parents argued about what was the right thing to do. And I'm and, sure they did. Yes. And how many parents are experts in child development to know that was such a need for that child to jump in that water? <laughs> so I think 
um, adding a developmental flavor to uh, family therapy is is um, a, a very good approach. I, I know I would have loved to know more about what is normal teenage behavior. You know, when Jim was getting sick, as I said, he started using drugs in ninth grade. Um, you know, we began to finally tumble to the fact that he was using drugs, but mental illness never caught our attention and um, or came up, even though my grandmother, that I, who I write about in the book, had uh, schizophrenia. He, she didn't use drugs. I never knew her when she was a teenager. We, you know, what is normal behavior versus what is teenage behavior with drugs? And then to pile on top of that, what is teenage behavior with drugs and with budding mental illness? I think that's just too much for any parent to be able to separate. Yeah, it, it's not an easy, it's not easy for a professional. I mean, the, in adolescence, the brain is being reworked. There, there's new connections. and and the behaviors, as a consequence, are pretty unusual. You know, um, the why you said something that yesterday was accepted, but today you get snapped at. What, <laughs> what's that about? And 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 unfortunately, the teenager doesn't have a better perspective than anybody else about why that happened. It just you were irritating me, but I only said this. But that was irritating. Why is that irritating? <laughs> Why are you asking me so many questions? Yeah, very, very hard. Well, well, in the adult system, um, I don't think it's figured out yet um, because um, it seems like um, there's very few places that Jim can go. And he's now, as I said, doing well. We thank the Lord for that. But um, the, even the last time he was needing to go to treatment after a stay in the psych ward for his mental illness and chemical use, um, you know, he, he, um, there are very few places, it seems, that actually treat both. You know, they often want the mental illness taken care of first, and then they'll deal with the chemical dependency or vice versa. Why do you think that is? (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? Well, um, they, they, these two forms of brain disease grew up in different places. Those silos never got connected. The federal government uh, made an effort uh, to uh, connect them and wanted places that had that were delivering mental health care to also have care for chemical health problems. The worlds are so different. The chemical health orientation is, why are you doing this confrontation uh, and and as the person is describing their their addictive behaviors, people are jumping all over them to tell them, well, uh, uh, you're making all of these mistakes and uh, and you're not being realistic about your your chemical health issues. The mental health system came from let's understand this. Let's talk about this. Let's what uh, tell me about your feelings. It's not confrontive. So, from the very beginning, you have two different models of care, and one has thinks about a medical model and medications, and the other one thinks about 
confrontation and tough love. You know, it's one of those just buck up, be a man, tough love. And they don't, they don't mix. It's oil and water. It doesn't mix very well. Now, the, chem, the chemical health group, um, like with uh, Hazelton, has come a long way, much more uh, consistent with what we understand about the brain. But uh, other systems uh, haven't changed very much. Even, even if the federal government has said you need to do both of these things at the same time because the level of comorbidity is so high for these. People with addiction have um, mental illness and people with mental illness will develop addiction at a very high rate. So it's not two silos. These are, these are behaviors. And for some of these behaviors, we're very critical and judgmental for other behaviors, if you know people, somebody is crying and they're depressed, we're so sympathetic to that person. Well, that's a brain disease and it has certain kinds of behavioral characteristics and why we want to be so kind to one and so nasty to another. I think we need a cultural rethinking of how we behave towards people. And one other thing, one other, before I forget, when, when you were talking about Jim going from hospital to uh, a treatment center, um, it reminds me of the fact that when you say that we have a mental health system of care, what we really have is a set of procedures. When you finish this, the procedure is you go there. When you finish that, the procedure is you go there. It's a set of procedures. It, to say it's a system, um, and it, and and use the word care. It's it's a bureaucratic trans system of transitions uh, around which people are funneled from one place to another. Yes, and in my book, as you know, at one time that happened to Jim for nineteen months. This place, then that place, then that place, then that place. I you know I was just um, hard to keep up with where he even was because all those places tend to be three months or less, 90 days. It's all connected to how they're funded. And once the funding is done, it doesn't matter what stage the person is in, in terms of their mental health or their chemical dependency, they need to be moved on to somewhere else where nobody knows them either. It's really not, not a good system. You're exactly right. It's, a, it's a procedures around transition. It is not, it does not, and you say this so clearly, why can't we just see what they need and give them what they need? Yes. <laughs> it's so obvious. I know it. Now that leads into another sticky wicket question that we've had a lot of trouble with, with Jim at different times when he's not doing well, especially. And that is for every Jim, as you say, what do we do about people who don't agree to be helped. You know, if they have brain dysfunction, uh, there's nothing the matter with me. I don't have a mental illness. I can handle my, my substances that I'm using and I'm not going to cooperate and you can't make me. Um, what do you do? What do we do about that? Obviously there's civil commitment for the very, very, you know, high level people that are dangerous to themselves or others. But what about everybody else if they won't agree to be helped? Mindy, you're defining the use 
of the Commitment Act only when it bothers other people. You know, when when it when I'm 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 upset because this person is bothering me. He's a danger to me, or he's he appears to be a danger to himself, and that's going to be really messy. So let's not have that. But it's the same brain disease at the at the lesser level of of bother as well. They're not making these good decisions. You know, I I don't understand why I can't just go to a judge and say, uh, my daughter has been diagnosed with such and such. She's having these behaviors and she's refusing to do things in her best interest. I may not know exactly what her best interest is, but I know it better than anybody else. Why don't you empower me to make these decisions for her? Because this is what will happen. Because it happened the last time. The the things that happened in their apartment caused them to be kicked out of their apartment and to become homeless. It's that she's she doesn't she's not going to be homeless now, but she will eventually. Can we do something now before it's danger to self and others? I don't I don't understand why. It, I can't just say it's brain disease, stupid, and and, yeah. and they can't make these good decisions. That's what we feel like saying to people, I can tell you that. Well, I'm a big a proponent advocate of assisted outpatient treatment, and all of us like you and me and so many others who are parents of children who have such struggles in life um, know that that is the right thing to do. And we know that there's the other side where um, patients' rights groups are, you know, argue for people to have the right to choose. And But to me, I see it so clearly, you know, they're talking about, they're not talking about someone as ill as, as our children. And um, the idea that we want someone to have the right to die because of their their substance abuse or through a, some other suicide attempt or to, in the case of our son, as you know, to jump off a building and break his back. You know, those are things that could be prevented. And it seems like if we would stop and think carefully about the people who need help, there would be more talking about assisted outpatient treatment. Instead, most elected officials, and I know this well, having been one, um, don't want to run afoul of, you know, the American Civil Liberties Union or groups like that that do so much good in so many areas, but are so wrong on this one. They, uh, so I see it a little differently. They hide their nihilism about, about effective intervention behind the, the term, they have their right. They have the right to do bad things to themselves. Why should I why, why is our society at the point where saying they have the right to do bad things to themselves? Should I be respectful? Yes. Should you be respectful? Yes. Do I, do I believe in the dignity of a human being? Yes. And that's why I think I need to intervene rather than throw up my hands and say they have the right to do that. That's nihilism. That's not intervention. Well, you'll get no argument from me. And we've had a wonderful conversation and um, we've covered so many things. And I'm so very 
honored and pleased, George, that you have spent all this time discussing these important issues of mental illness and substance abuse with me and talking about our children and the scores of people that they represent and their families like us. I just want to close. I always like to end if I'm ever talking about mental illness on a more hopeful note. And so I don't, if you have anything more you wanted to add, feel free to add it in here now. But the closing question that I'd like us to discuss is, is there hope for, for the mental health system and especially those who also have substance abuse issues that we're talking about today? What can, what can we hang on to to think things are going to be better? Uh, I, I've, got, I've got things to say about that too. And, and I want to say thank you for inviting me to do this. This was, I, I didn't realize this would happen, but it was cathartic. It was healing. To be able to talk to you, maybe, about these things um, in this personal way is just, uh, I'm just so thankful for, for this opportunity. Uh, and, and I am hopeful. Uh, young people are seeing the world very differently than we are. Uh, Black Lives Matter may be all about uh, systemic racism, but it's about a lot of other things that are like that. The way that uh, addicts are treated is is horrendous, is horrible, is inhumane. Letting people live on the street uh, because they have mental illness is inhumane. Uh, and And I think young people are saying, this is not right. We have to be respectful. We have to, we, we cannot li- allow people to be treated um, badly. Everybody, it, we're all human beings. Uh, human beings matter. And I think there's a cultural revolution going on that I hope also touches mental illness and chemical illness. Uh, when you talk to young people, they seem to have it right. So that's that is my biggest hope. I'm leaving this. I'm old, and I'm leaving this planet in the hands of some people who are advocates and just just have a belief in in uh, the human race that uh, for many older people they have entrenched themselves in ideas that are not helpful. So that's that's my biggest hope. Well, I can piggyback on that and say me too, because writing my whole book was cathartic for me. You know, I didn't think it would be when I started writing. I was just joining a writing group at the loft, and I actually didn't write about mental illness for the first couple of turns I had. But once I started, um, I could see that was, you know, the story I was meant to write, and it was very cathartic. And my hope uh, for the future is the same as yours. And that's the young people. I have a granddaughter who is 16 years old and she and her friends freely discuss mental illness. One of her um, friends that she's known since they were toddlers uh, was struggling with, um, with depression or some sort of illness. I never caught the diagnosis, but he was missing a lot of school. He's a brilliant kid, but he wasn't um, doing his homework and doing well. And um, she kind of helped him through it. His mother found him a psychiatrist and he um, had the support not only of his 
mental health, mental health staff and his family, he had the support of his friends, which I don't think, you know, happened uh, even when, you know, 20 years ago when Jim was getting sick, I, I know it didn't happen and it's happening today. So I think that's the hope for the future too, the young people. So on that note, I think it's a good, um, a good spot to end unless you have any parting words, George. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Mindy. Thank you for writing this book. Uh, should we put this book on every legislator's uh, lap? I think we. Sh I think we should. <laughs> I think we very definitely should. Agree. All right. Thank you so much, and um, I look forward to talking with you again in the future. You're you're such a star of a psychiatrist and a person and a friend. So thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. For more information, please visit z.umn.edu forward slash fix what you can.